Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We've been in a preaching series that we've titled, Thou Shall Be Free, and it's looking at the Ten Commandments that Jesus gives Moses on top of Mount Sinai, and it was these laws or these invitations into a life of freedom and fullness. We've often looked at the Ten Commandments, I think, in the, in the global church as rules or uh, law that we need to follow, and, and while, yes, it is that, uh, more so, uh, we are taught that actually these are beautiful invitations into a life of fullness and freedom. So Jesus does not uh, highlight for us, even in the New Testament, the laws, the Father does not give the laws to Moses because he wants us to do stuff, but rather he's inviting us into what Jesus calls life and life to the full. And he knows that following and living life in this way or living the way of Jesus, which would, which would um, include these laws or living in this manner, is not to control us or to hinder us from doing stuff, but rather to invite us into a life of full, full a life of freedom and fullness in the way of Jesus. And so we've been looking at Exodus chapter 20, and we're in week six of the Ten Commandments. If you've missed some or you want to go back and listen, you can go onto our podcast or our YouTube channel. And today we're in week six looking at the Sixth Commandment, and uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, if you've got your Bibles. I know we've been up and down a bit, but we love standing in reverence for God's Word. And so I'm just going to invite you to stand again. <laughs> I know, I know. You're getting your quad workouts. You're going to be sitting on the couch this afternoon, watching the football, eating snacks. I'm just trying to get some cardio movement for you. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or on the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation, those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or your resident alien who's within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Amen. Do not murder. Do not murder. This is the command that we'll look at today. Daryl Johnson says in his book on the Ten Commandments that the greatest tragedy is that the living God even had to utter these words. 
The great tragedy is that creatures of the good God made in the good image of the good God should have to be told to not take the life of another creature. It ought to be self-evident that another person's life is sacred, however young or old, however deformed or evil. Can you feel the great grief in Yahweh's voice when it comes to speaking the sixth commandment? Do not murder. But why does God hate murder? God shows us his hatred for murder right in the beginning of the scriptures. We see in the moment when Cain, uh, the son of Adam and Eve, kills his brother Abel just how much God hates and despises murder, the taking of someone else's life unjustly. But why does God actually hate this particular act? The first and main reason that stands out in scripture is that the act of murder is actually an assault on God himself. After God made a covenant with Noah never to destroy mankind by a flood, again, and that's all of mankind, he, he set up a system to protect human life, showing us just how valuable the human being is to God himself. We see that we are made in the very image of God in Genesis chapter 1. We read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so every human being, however problematic they may be, however evil, is a work of the Lord. Every single human being on the face of this planet who has ever lived or will ever live is a work of God bearing the image of our creator. Every human being is a creation of creator God. And to murder another human being is actually to murder what is most like God in all of creation. To take the life of someone, another human being, is to take the life of someone or something that is most like God in all of creation. It's actually an attack on the creator of all life. And so God says in the Ten Commandments, do not murder. Now, it's really easy and tempting for us in the church or even outside the church to make an agreement with that statement, do not murder. Of course, yes. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to agree with the fact that murdering someone is not a good idea and we should rather not do that. Absolutely and it's, it's easy for us to kind of say, okay, do not murder, and then move on to more like relevant commands to you and me, because we never have any intent of murdering someone. But the fact of the matter is, you know, even though 99.999% of people have no desire and you never will murder someone, uh, we have no intention of doing so. But God, the creator, the lawgiver, he loves us too much to let us just brush over this command and not draw our attention to these very particular three words, do not murder. Yahweh comes down from a mountaintop uh, in the New Testament. He comes all the way down and he enters humanity in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And in his person, uh, sorry, in his, in his uh, uh, sermon, rather, the person Jesus, our Lord, he deepens this protest against inhumanity. At its essence, the sixth commandment is a protest against inhumanity. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he deepens this protest. He extends the protest by exposing the unresolved anger in our hearts from which the act of murder emerges. 
In Matthew chapter five, Jesus is giving what is known to be the greatest sermon of all time. And in chapter five, verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool, using unkind words, will be subject to hellfire. Now, you don't need to grow up in church to know that murder is a wicked offense. We all hate it. Yet for all of our hatred for murder out there in the world, we fail to hate the murder in here that takes place in our hearts. But Scripture, and the words of Jesus in particular, will not allow us to hate murder at a distance. The sixth commandment of do not murder actually exposes a universal problem and a universal need for repentance and forgiveness. It exposes the problem with the human heart. Can we say heart? Not heart. That's like, we're going to say heart. Can we say heart? Can we do that? Yeah, it's like there's more, just feel stronger. Okay. It's a matter of the heart. 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 Casey Hansen put it this way. He says, acts do not come down from nowhere. Murder does not come out of nowhere. Acts emerge from the heart. Jesus therefore makes us face what is going on in our hearts. What we have, Daryl Johnson says in the sixth commandment, is at rock bottom a protest, a protest against inhumanity. And what we have here is a call to bring our hearts to the foot of the cross where human inhumanity is most unjustly and violently manifested and where ironically it is healed. And so in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says to us, you have heard it said, do not murder. And he says, but I tell you, he deepens the protest. Jesus draws out the deeper intent of the sixth commandment where he he deepens and he heartens and he extends God's protest against inhumanity and he points out our anger against the brother or sister that is left unresolved is in line with the commandment of do not murder. Because it is in the mind and in the heart that murder is first conceived. John Calvin, in his Institutes of Religion, says, see whether you can be angry against your brother without burning with desire to hurt him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges his disciples. He challenges them to live according to the standards of the kingdom of God and not the standards of the world around them or even the religious establishments. You see, the standards of the world is don't kill anyone. And everyone can say, great, we don't want to kill anyone. And most people, you know, hopefully will never, ever do that. But Jesus says, hey, that's the standard of the world. Just simply don't kill. I'm going to look at the hearts, standard of the kingdom. And he tells them that their righteousness, if they're going to do that, must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We know that the scribes and the Pharisees were the, the kind of the police of the, of the law and the rules and rituals that had been set up in the day, and they attempted to uh, pursue outward conformity to the law, behavioral change, instead of the inward transformation of the heart, which is what Jesus was after. Friends, God cares so much more about our hearts than he does about our behaviors. Jesus displays the succeeding righteousness by using the refrain, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, he's not saying that what was written in the Old Testament is not true. Rather, he's actually correcting 
how they heard what was said in the Old Testament, and he's giving them the correct interpretation of the scriptures that they had read. Now the whole world understands that murder is a crime, and the religious establishment focused on this outward nature of not murdering anyone, but the standard of the kingdom of God is not merely to avoid the shedding of blood, because if we focus on the mere act of murdering someone, we are missing the heart of the command itself. John Piper says that it is not enough to not murder. You must eradicate hatred from your heart. See, murder is not merely an action without any reference to the character of the murderer. Something more fundamental is at stake. And John Piper goes on to say, the sinful anger and wrath that lurk behind the deed itself is blameworthy and will be subject to judgments. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life re residing in him. So we can see that the stakes could not be higher. Eternal life is at stake. To follow this commandment is to live in the peace and the joy of unity and reconciliation that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot ever think uh, of taking the life of another person unjustly without thinking of Jesus himself, whose life was lost at the hands of wicked and unjust men. The requirement of peace and joy, of unity and reconciliation was completely set aside when our Savior was crucified on the cross. And yet, God was at work there in that moment when Jesus hung and died. He was at work satisfying his wrath against sin and upholding his justice to forgive sinners. And it's this grace that motivates you and me to be people of life and to be people of love. See, during the week that when Jesus was crucified, he was asked by one of the teachers of the law, what is the greatest commandment? The, the, the agenda of this teacher of the law was to catch Jesus out. He, he wanted to trick Jesus. So he asks him this question, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers with this beautiful answer. He says, the most important is, listen, Israel, listen, my people, the church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The greatest commandment is to love. And then Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is the commandment to love. Jesus sums up the whole law which is the Ten Commandments, but that actually also then developed into over 500 laws in the Old Testament that had been instituted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus says, hey, all of these laws, all of them, can come under the simple idea of love. Two great loves. The vertical love of loving God himself and then the horizontal love of loving people around us. He says, hey, do these two things and you'll obey all the laws. The Apostle Paul, he says it like this. He says in Romans chapter 13, verse eight, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It's love fulfills the law. See, if we love God with all of our being, that love will express itself in obedience from the first commandment through to the fourth. If you love God, you shall have no other God before me. If you love God, you shall not make any images of him. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, and you will remember to keep the Sabbath and keep, to keep it holy. And then if you love your neighbor as yourself, that love will express itself in the obedience of laws five through 10. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. The whole idea is to love, and it's summed up in these two great loves of vertical love for God and horizontal love for your neighbor. And so putting it this way actually awakens us to see how loveless our world actually is. Putting it this way makes us see how loveless our own hearts can be at times. Putting it this way also helps us see our need for help outside of ourselves. See, understanding the law in this way makes us realize our need for a savior for someone to come and to give us a new heart, a new heart. And so what do we need? What's the solution? Well, it's a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, the prophet says, I will also sprinkle clean water on you. God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and he's saying, you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your old heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and my laws and carefully obey my ordinances, my instructions. You will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. He's saying, hey, I'm gonna give you a completely new heart. I'm gonna cleanse you. Wash you clean. You know, sometimes you just like cleaning something just doesn't do the job. Like something gets dirty and then you, you try to clean it up and, and it's just, at the end of the day, it's just not worth cleaning because it's just so dirty that you need to replace the thing completely. Um, I've got a story about this. I've been like wrestling, should I include this or not? But I'm just gonna do it. So I've got two boys. My, oh, I'm a, yeah, I won't tell you which one, but it, I won't name him, but it's the oldest one. Um, <laughs> Caitlin and I were on a road trip to go visit her, her father who lived five hours away from us. And, uh, and there was a poop explosion like you've never seen, like in the backseat of the car. I know that's gross. I shouldn't do it. You will cut this out the recording. It's fine. But it was like, like if you've had kids, I'm gonna, if you've had kids, you're gonna like laugh with me. And if you haven't had kids, I'm preparing you. So there was so much coming out, that it like came out his sleeve and like out the back of his, top of his baby grow, it was not a pleasant experience. And we pulled over on the side of the road. I don't do that smell, like I'm just not that guy. And so Caitlin was taking care of it. And, um, and I was like, can you hurry up? We need to go. And so Caitlin's taking care of it. Anyway, long story short, we cleaned up the mess and we had the, the baby grow that now is, you know, soiled. And... Um, <laughs> Caitlin wants to clean the baby grow. And I'm just like, no, we need a whole new one because we cannot clean this thing. That's probably a terrible analogy and you're not gonna email me about it because I'm trying. But here's the thing. Sometimes something is just not worth cleaning. You just gotta get a whole new one. 
And that's the case with the human heart. We need a whole new heart. And the Lord says, hey, I'm going to come and give you a whole new heart. In this passage, we see that God does not just gather his people so that he can cleanse us only. He actually gathers us so that he can change us completely. Now, God does not say, clean yourself up and then come to me. If that were the case, then there would be no one clean enough to come to the Lord. No, he says, I will gather you in all of your wretchedness, and I will wash you, and I will make you new. But we, need, we do not need to just be cleansed. We also need to be completely changed. You see, salvation is not just information and a cleansing. It's a complete transformation, a whole being made new. In verse 26, I will give you a new heart and give you a new spirit, and I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. See, God does not leave his people in the condition that he gathers them in. He, he gives them a new heart and he places a spirit within us. The heart surgery that God performs during, it produces a desire or changes our desires rather, and that actually changes our deeds. It's not change your deeds or change your behavior and then I'll work on you. No, it's come to me. He changes our hearts, gives us new desires, and that outworks itself in our behaviors. And having been purified and now empowered by God's spirit that's now living in us, God's people follow his statutes and observe his ordinances, his instructions, his law, the commandments. So we don't change by following the law. This is so important as we gather through the series. We don't change by following the law. We follow the law because we are changed. We are set free so that we can obey. We don't gain intimacy with the Lord through obedience. We, we enjoy deeper intimacy through the Lord in obedience. See, all of this is about reconciliation. God being, or man rather, being reconciled to God and man and man being reconciled to each other. All of this reconciliation and this, this coming above and overcoming anger and murder makes me think of the events that happened in the early 1900s in my home country of South Africa. If you know anything of the history of South Africa, there was this uh, ruling government known as the apartheid government, uh, an evil system enforced, that enforced segregation and discrimination on the grounds of race. It was terrible. At the end of the apartheid government in the 1990s, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was formed. The Truth and Reconciliation was authorized, uh, Commission was authorized by Nelson Mandela and chaired by Bishop Desmond Tutu, if you've heard of him. The commission invited witnesses who had identified as victims of gross human rights violations to give statements about their experiences at public hearings. So you would have these men and women who had been subjected to horrific oppression based on the grounds of their race, they would come before a court and they would meet with their perpetrator, the, the man or woman who had abused them. So the perpetrators of violence would come and they would give testimony and request amnesty from both civil and criminal prosecution granted by those who had been wronged. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's emphasis on reconciliation was actually in sharp contrast with the approach take, taken by the Nuremberg trials or other denazification measures. Can you imagine? 
someone had done horrific crime to you, you would come before a civil court, the perpetrator would be there, they would give test, each person would give testimony, and he or she who had committed the crime would ask for forgiveness from the person who had been harmed. And then that person had the authority and power to grant their wrongdoer amnesty from their crimes. South Africa's first coalition government chose to pursue forgiveness over prosecution and reparation over retaliation, and this saved our nation. With Bishop Desmond Tutu leading the way, this effect was all grounded in the biblical teachings of Jesus around repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Nelson Mandela was South Africa's uh, first, uh, well, black or non-white president, and he was a South African anti-apartheid activist, if you don't know who Nelson Mandela is, and a politician that served as our first democratic, fairly elected president. He was the country's first black head of state. And Nelson Mandela, if you know, served 27 years in prison, charged for crimes while trying to liberate the country from the evil apartheid government. Can you imagine the anger that would have or could have manifested in his own heart as he sat in prison for crimes most of which he did not commit, and even the thoughts of revenge, anger, or murderous thoughts that could have come into his own hearts and mind. While in prison, he was serving, uh, after serving 19 years, he said, we must strive to be moved by a generosity of spirit that will enable us to outgrow the hatred and conflicts of our past. Mandela's name is synonymous with forgiveness. He'll be remembered as someone who lived and loved he died forgiving. Mandela was prevented from attending the funeral of his own mother as he sat in prison and at the funeral of his own son, but he did not allow the anger and resentment to fester in his own heart. It was a matter of, he had a different heart posture. Although he was bitter to have been denied this opportunity to say goodbye to the ones that he loved, he was quoted in saying, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping it'll kill your enemies. It is forgiveness towards our nation's wrongdoers that, Man that Mandela used as a weapon of against oppression and the opp oppressive apartheid governments, which enabled transformation of relationships, positive change, and peace in South Africa. I remember this clearly. This isn't some distant event that, like, I remember as a young boy driving to the shopping centers and being told that there is a bomb scare and we all had to go home. I remember hearing bombs go off and violent fighting in the streets uh, during this heightened moment of anger and resentment that was leading towards murder. And then I remember it just changing. I remember fear uh, uh, being gripping the nation, and then I remember hope being released. I remember, like, my parents being stressed out about you know, what our lives are gonna look like. And then I remember it just transitioning to something completely different to what we had imagined it being. I remember sitting in school and then having more and more black boys come into my class. I remember things changing, but peacefully. Mandela said, forgiveness liberates the soul and it removes fear. That's why it's such a powerful weapon. 
Our entire country was liberated. Fear dissolved. Many people were set free. Unity and peace were the, the, the emotions. All because Mandela and Tutu and many others chose to follow the biblical teachings of Jesus around loving the neighbor as oneself, pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation. They embodied a spirit of love in their hearts that changed our nation. He said, you will achieve more in this world through acts of mercy than you will through acts of retribution. Mandela's lifestyle of repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, a posture of loving the other even when we've been wronged needs to be emulated by all. Friends, do you feel the weight of this? Jesus is saying, you are not safe from punishment just because you have not shed blood. If you have harbored anger, contempt, malice towards another person, then you're guilty. Saying, have you ever wished someone harm? Have you ever rejoiced over someone else's misfortune? Have you ever put someone else down with your words? Have you ever even just thought uh, of another person in a way that would not be of their flourishing and uh, their goodness? Jesus is saying, hey, then in your own heart, you've known murder. The radical righteousness that Jesus demands is not merely refraining from an outward sin, but a transformation of the heart by his love and by his grace. When that happens, it can produce peace and reconciliation in the world around us. Our only hope is Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness and offers it to us as a free gift that we receive by grace and through faith. And so what do we do? Well, I'm gonna invite Jen and, and Taylor up. What do we do? Firstly, as we end now, we, we repent, we, we confess. We turn to God and we confess our sin of anger or resentment. We confess where we know that in our own hearts, on our own minds, we've brought a brother or sister down either with actions, words, or thoughts. We make no excuse for it. We recognize our shortcomings before the Lord and we ask for outside help as the Spirit can come and cleanse us, make us new, give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And in doing so, secondly, we receive the gift of grace that is found in Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so this is not, hey, recognize your sin and your, your, the, the, the evil thoughts or the murder in our own hearts and now feel bad about it. No, it's recognize, confess, repent, and receive the free gift of grace. And so we don't live under condemnation, but under fullness and freedom. This is why Jesus came. He lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and he rose so that we could have life in him both now and after death on this planet. For those who believe in him, the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word over us and gives us forgiveness and acceptance. By faith, we receive the gift of the gospel. And then thirdly, we reconcile specifically. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, so if you, have off, if you are offering your gift in the altar, so you're coming to worship, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go, first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Jesus calls for a specific action here towards a specific brother or sister. So there's actually... We come before the Lord, we recognize, confess, repent, we receive the gift of grace, but then there's this, okay, you're in this moment, you're at the altar, you're in the body, but it's 
put your offering down, go and make right. Is there anyone that you need to make right with? Maybe you have offended or done wrong to them, or maybe they've done wrong to you, and so there needs to be a reconciliation that takes place. Notice that in this particular passage, it isn't that, that it isn't someone that you're angry with. There's actually, it's actually more someone who is offended by you. Have you done something to offend someone? Whether they're right or wrong in that offense, that's not up to you. Just maybe God brings that to mind and you just say, hey, I'm sorry that this offended you. Because in doing so, you're loving your brother or your sister as you love yourself and making it right with them. But you're also obeying and loving the Father as well, following the two greatest commands. So the first act of worship is for us to make right with another. That's what the scriptures say. So God calls us to sensitivity in our relationships with others, dealing with the real offenses that the Holy Spirit puts into our minds against specific people and making rights. We seek to reconcile quickly with others. That's what it says. We replace hate and anger with words that give life and that bless others and bless ourselves. We enter into a space of freedom. It's that Mandela quote of, uh, you drink poison hoping it hurts the, the other person. No, let's just put all that aside, love our brothers and sisters, and love God, and live in peace. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. We have been forgiven, so we can freely forgive. We've been reconciled to the Father, and we can be reconciled to others. So is there anyone in your life you need to just be reconciled with? That's an invitation from the Spirit this morning. Not so that you can earn standing before God, but this is an invitation to a life of freedom and wholeness that is on offer in the person of Jesus. And I just encourage you, if there's someone that you need to make right with, make right for them, but also for yourself so that you can step into the fullness of what Jesus has for you, which is life and life in abundance. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.